0: You're listening to Ari Snapshots, where each fortnight we chat about the science behind the weeds and decode some of the trickier concepts which crop up. Today on RE Snapshots, we're chatting with Colorado State University Associate Professor Dr. Todd Gaines about metabolism-based glyphosate resistance. Peter Newman recently wrote RE Insight on this topic. So back in 2011, then-Award River agronomist Andrew Cripps was approached by a farmer asking why his barnyard grass had survived glyphosate. So Dr. Todd Gaines and Professor Steve Powers at the time visited the northern irrigation region in WA and took samples and they confirmed glyphosate resistance. So recently, further research at ARI by Chinese researcher Dr. Pan Lang under the direction of ARI's Tinyu confirmed the world's first case of metabolism-based glyphosate resistance. So Todd will join us now and share his experience back in 2011 and also provide some insights into what this discovery means. So welcome, Todd. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Jess.
0: All right. So most people would be familiar with your work and your time in ARI. But before we get into this topic, can you just give us a bit of a refresher on what work you did do at ARI and what you're doing now?
1: Sure. I was really lucky to get to spend a few years at ARI and I was working on a project with Steve Powells and Roberto Busi and Michael Walsh. The idea was to look at pyroxysulfone, which at that point in time had not yet been introduced to the market and see what we could understand about the potential for resistance of pyroxysulfone, both looking at the possibility for a high level resistance. So we screened millions and millions of uh, ryegrass seeds looking for possible pyroxysulfone resistance, didn't find any, but Roberto did a recurrent selection at low doses and was able to find that uh, some populations that already had metabolic resistance to other herbicides did have potential to evolve resistance to pyroxysulfone. So it was really a world first and an opportunity to proactively look at resistance to a new herbicide coming into the the area. So that was the main focus of what I was working on there.
0: Okay, excellent. And what are you doing now, Todd?
1: Now, these days, I'm here at Colorado State University, and I have a, a group that I'm working with here, colleagues and students. And the main focus is still on herbicide resistance, its evolution, the types of mechanisms that go into that. So really interested in particularly metabolic resistance, a lot of work going on for synthetic auxin herbicides, things like 2,4-D and dicamba, as well as uh, metabolic resistance to uh, other types of herbicides as well.
0: Excellent. So as mentioned in the intro uh, previously just there, yourself and Professor Steve Fowles, you both visited the northern irrigation region in Western Australia, took samples of barnyard grass and tested it. Can you tell us a bit more about what you found?
1: Sure, it was an amazing trip. You know, going up there, uh, visiting Andrew Cripps and getting to see the Ord River Irrigation Area. It is really a unique place. And if people haven't been there, it is worth a look because you have this huge reservoir that is essentially an open sea. You know, boats have to have navigation equipment to go out on it. There's there's so much water there. And they have the land that they uh, grow crops on for the most part during the dry season. And so water is not limiting in any way, but is so far away from everything else. So, you know, talking to the growers there, you really got the sense that it's a lot of boom and bust. You know, they're, it's full of characters and dreamers and they're thinking of what might they be able to grow there. They could have a lot of potential. So we were looking mostly at paddocks where they're growing melons. And uh, but we also looked at places where they're establishing sandalwood plantations. I remember I saw uh, Andrew showed me a field of chia, and at the time I thought, "What in the world?" But you know (laughs) now I eat it most every morning
0: on my oatmeal. So
1: I guess they they were onto something there. But uh, also the rice production and the challenges they've had both with rice and cotton production in the past, and how they're approaching that. So it is an amazing place, but also because of the rainy season create some issues for weed management, certainly. Mm.
0: Yeah, so tell us more about that, Todd. Sure.
1: The issue that in particular we were looking at was for onless barnyard grass and a number of paddocks where the growers were controlling weeds over the rainy season using glyphosate uh, flown on by aerial applications. And because it's tropical, warm year-round, the weeds are growing all the time, they're essentially using multiple repeated applications of glyphosate from a plane. You know, so these are low application volumes of water for one. And then looking at these fields, you could really see that there were spots where, for the most part in the field, the barnyard grass was controlled, and you could see plants that would have been the same in size at the time of spraying that survived. So I collected seeds from those from uh, um, several different locations and brought those back to Perth for more testing.
0: We sort of mentioned there that, about what you did find, but can you just give us a little bit of an idea, when you did those tests, what you actually discovered when you got back?
1: Once we got back, the, I went up there in May and took these samples. So then coming back to the glass house you know, in the middle of winter, it's a bit cool. And I had samples from several different spots, as well as a location that we thought should be susceptible, shouldn't have been exposed to any herbicide selection. And the results weren't very convincing in the glass house in the wintertime. So you have cooler temperatures, by a lot uh, compared to the summertime. And a few plants were surviving at some low doses of glyphosate. But Steve Powells, of course, has a wealth of experience. And he reminded me of other cases that he looked at where, for example, things that had typically been treated in cold temperatures weren't resistant when it was hot or vice versa. So we tried again in the summertime, uh, outdoors in the growing area, and when we tested the plants there, they were highly resistant, and it was, the results were so clear that uh, they were surviving, you know, very high doses, uh, clearly resistant. And so then we, the work started to purify those populations, and subsequent research confirmed that this effect of temperature on resistance, that uh, plants grown to 30 degrees were more resistant, had more survival than plants, the same resistant plants when grown at 20 degrees. So uh, clearly it makes sense. These plants were selected in the tropical region, in the rainy season, it's very warm, and that's where this resistance mechanism is functioning.
0: Further work has been done in this space now by Dr. Pan Lang recently under the direction of RSTNU, as we mentioned in that intro before, and they've confirmed the world's first case of metabolism-based glyphosate resistance. So Todd, what does this finding mean?
1: It's fantastic work and it really changes our understanding of glyphosate resistance. Glyphosate's such a unique herbicide for many reasons, but we see a broader range of resistance mechanisms for glyphosate than we do really for any other type of herbicide. We have target site mutations in the gene, EPSPS. We have gene duplications, extra copies of the gene leading to increased protein production. We see reduced translocation, that's fairly common in ryegrass. We see sequestration in the vacuole, in uh, caniza. But for a long time, people had been thinking about, could we see glyphosate metabolism? And in general in plants, you just don't see it. It really wasn't measured at all until the Roundup Ready resistance gene was introduced in soybean. And then researchers in the plants that could survive glyphosate We're finding a low level of metabolism and then followed up by looking in some other legumes and finding a little bit of metabolism of glyphosate to a compound called AMPA. But again, and for the most part, you didn't see this metabolism in weeds. There was some work over the last eight years or so suggesting the possibility of glyphosate metabolism in some species from South America. But the methods and some of the results, just, just people still had some questions and it seemed like there was some more follow-up to work to do, whereas this work from Ari shows convincingly that these echinocloa plants produce this known metabolite of glyphosate AMPA. The gene has been identified, reductase, and it's overexpressed in the echinocloa plants and when they put it into transgenic rice, They're able to find that it made the plants resistant, and it makes a metabolite AMPA there. So it's really a a closed circle. It's a full story from start to finish showing there is metabolism. And uh, this gene family, Aldocheta reductase, is something we didn't really know about. We hadn't been looking at. There was a paper in Plant Biotechnology Journal a couple of years ago suggesting that this could be the case. But uh, again, here, really showing this has evolved in weeds it opens up our understanding of this process and we need to be looking at this and other glyphosate-resistant needs for sure.
0: Excellent summary, uh, Todd. Really appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, I think you might be able to give us a good overview of how glyphosate metabolism actually works as well. Now, we do have a graphic uh, on the RE Insight which helps to explain this, but could you just give us a bit of a verbal explanation of how glyphosate metabolism actually works?
1: Sure. So the, the molecule of glyphosate is essentially half the amino acid glycine, and the other half is a compound called PEP, so it contains phosphorus, and it's kind of these two stuck together. What the metabolism mechanism is doing is splitting that in half, more or less. And so you're getting AMPA, which no longer inhibits EPSPS, and you also get glyoxylate, which is a compound that occurs in plants anyways. And so neither of these are going to have the, the herbicide effect anymore. What's just so interesting is, you know, this gene, reductase, is able to have this activity, produce these metabolites, and that uh, a polyploid weed like barnyard grass can uh, overexpress this gene. A lot of questions now about how is that overexpression controlled? How much expression of that gene do you need? Sometimes you can have a sequence variation in that gene that helps it be more efficient. I would mention that the other place where we see glyphosate metabolism is in some transgenic or GMO crops that are resistant to glyphosate. For the most part, they, they haven't been on the market much, but uh, Pioneer had a product called GATT, which was called glyphosate uh, acetyltransferase. And it was a gene isolated from bacteria that metabolized glyphosate to AMPA, And it worked very well. The plants were highly resistant. There's also a gene called glyphosate oxidase that has been used in some Roundup Ready crops, which also breaks the glyphosate to an inactive form. So it's certainly something we knew can happen, but it really observed for the most part in bacteria. So again, to see it in plants, it's just a fascinating development.
0: Definitely. All right. Well, Todd, finally, can you just give a bit of an overview of how this resistance actually developed?
1: Yeah, I think this is a case where if you were to design sort of a perfect scenario for high risk of glyphosate resistance, this would be right up there. Because, again, what's happening, you have a high density of weeds, in this case barnyard grass, a lot of genetic diversity, and the only selection pressure that those weeds are exposed to for a period of about six months is glyphosate. So everything that is glyphosate sensitive is getting controlled. Any mutation that happens that allows survival will get through and of course be selected and increase in frequency because nothing else is going to be controlling it. They're not able to get out there. You know, the fields are really muddy. They do, uh, they did typically do a cultivation prior to planting melons. So that would be some mechanical control uh, to help you under, but you know, these plants can produce a lot of seeds and so that would all basically just be getting incorporated into the soil. They continue to germinate during that melon growing season and they can control with cultivation uh, and probably some group one herbicides when the melons are out there. But then again, the rainy season comes around and they have a chance to proliferate. So what could be done better is probably a herbicide mixture for that rainy season. And uh, But again, that's a, it's a tricky one because when you have a, a field that's just basically flooded and you can't get out there with any equipment, uh, probably another thing would be to do something about the seed that is set on any survivors out there, so perhaps uh, not exactly a harvest weed seed control, but a uh, pre-plant weed seed control. Some way to collect those, or even, you know perhaps burning. But that's where you know there's an opportunity to diversify the weed management so that it's not relying completely on glyphosate for the weed control.
0: Yeah, it needs some out of the box thinking potentially, but yeah, at least we know where they're at in terms of glyphosate resistance. So obviously, very helpful information and really valuable. All right, Todd. Well, I think that we've covered everything we need to today. We really appreciate you coming on the Ari Snapshots podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Sure. Great to chat, Jess.